Recently we had some uh, friends visit our home while on vacation here from the Pacific Northwest and they told us of a problem that was occurring in their area, in fact a very serious problem, and that was a rising frequency of human versus bear confrontations. And I thought that was kind of interesting because living here in Southern California, at least uh, in the flatlands, we don't have to deal with things like that, maybe coyotes, but certainly not bear confrontations. And I, so I asked him, I said, well, you know, what, what are you told to do or what kind of precautions can you take in a situation where you know that this is an ongoing problem? And he smiled and he handed me this uh, flyer that was being circulated in their area. And basically, listen carefully to the instructions. It says, in light of the rising frequency of human versus bear conflicts, the British Columbia Department of Fish and Wildlife is advising hikers, skiers, hunters, and fishermen to take extra precautions and all others to keep alert for bears while in the woods. It says, we advise that those pursuing activities in the outdoors should wear noisy little bells on their clothing so as not to startle the bears that are not expecting them. We also advise recreationalists to carry pepper spray with them just in case there is an encounter with a bear. They recommend that it's also good that those pursuing act, that, that those, um, it's also a good idea to watch out for fresh signs of bear activity in the woods. Recreationalists should be able to recognize the difference between black bear dung and grizzly bear dung. And for those who aren't familiar with what dung is, just share that to the person next to you. So here's, the, here's their recommendation. They say black bear dung is smaller, contains a lot of berries, and small animal fur, such as from squirrels or rabbits. It says grizzly bear dung has little bells in it and smells like pepper. <laughs> so I would say it's probably really important to know the difference between those two bears. That's good advice. But there is also a point, and the point is this, that quite often uh, life's great treasures of knowledge are not acquired through casual observation, but more often they're, um, they're obtained through a rigorous and persistent rolling up of our sleeves and painstaking effort. And that's true when it comes to discovering the truth from the Word of God. Colossians 2, 3, we read these words, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Great treasures, whether they're buried at the bottom of the ocean or within the great depths of the earth, are discovered only by those who are dedicated and de determined to pursue them. Those who are willing to make the effort to pay the price, those who are passionate in their pursuit, and when the treasure is ultimately discovered, there's one thing that's very interesting, and that is that all the effort and the price that has gone into finding that great treasure pales in comparison to the value and the worth of what is discovered. And so it should be, and it is, as one searches the Bible to discover the great truths of the Word of God. See, God has put within the reach of every one of us such great treasures. But those treasures will only be discovered by those who are passionate in the quest to discover them, to find them, uh, to learn more. And the value of those treasures, once they're find, uh, found, make all the painstaking effort and the rolling up of the sleeves very much worth it. You know, it's interesting as we go through it, the Word of God tells us that we should uh, be meditating upon the Word of God. Blessed are those who meditate on the Word of God. And there's a, a kind of a... Um, 
maybe a misnomer or, or something that, that we have in our culture as far as the whole idea of meditation. You know, we picture people in a lotus position or, you know, just ching, ching, whatever. And, and, you know, and, and so when we hear that meditation of the Word of God, we think, you know, we've got to crawl up in a ball somewhere, you know, and stare at the sky. But, you know, the word meditate really means simply to chew upon something. It means to chew on it over and over again. And as I go through the Word of God, I want to just kind of take you uh, with me on a journey that God has taken me on over the last several... Actually, it's been going on for several years, and it's kind of culminated in the last few weeks. But if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. I'd like you to see several passages that have kind of started me on a journey that leads us to where we are today. And it has to do with the idea of chewing upon something, or meditating on the Word of God. Chewing on it, thinking about it over and over again, reading through the Bible, and God continuing to bring back the same thought. And in Matthew chapter 28, we read these words at the very end of the, of the chapter, starting with, um, let's see, verse 16. There's a contrast that was taking place in this particular time between those who were in the masses of people and those who were in a select group called disciples. It says, but, and in contrast to what was taking place prior to that, but see, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Jesus had told his disciples that after three days he would rise again from the dead and that he would go on before them to Galilee and he would meet them there. And there were many people that had heard that and yet there were very few people that had obeyed. And yet the disciples, they went ahead, and they were, they were there, and they went where they were told to go. And when they saw him, as he promised he would be there, when they saw, saw him, they worshipped him. It says, but some were still doubtful. It says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And in our last series on end times, we realized that Jesus Christ has been given all authority of God to honor him for the sacrifice that he made on the behalf of those who would put their faith and trust in him. The Bible says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God, Philippians chapter 2. And Jesus again reiterates his promise that all authority has been given to him. It says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, now go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see the same instruction or the same command. And so as we put these two thoughts together, and the thing that I began to chew on was, you know, if we think about this, the very last command or the last words of instruction that Jesus gave to his followers before he returned to heaven was that we would make disciples. He said, go and make disciples. It was a command. It wasn't a suggestion. God, that was the very last thing that he said. And there's something about exit words that are very important to me. And I think to all of us, and there are things that we should take to heart. For example, if you're going out as a parent, and you say to your children, uh, if you go somewhere, leave us a note, or turn on the light, or uh, lock the door when you leave. The very last thing they say. Or as they're leaving for the day or the evening, you say, uh, you know, call us when you get there. The very last words as they walk out the door. Call us when you get there. Okay? Or be home by whatever time it is. If anything comes up, call us. Be home by a certain time. Call us when you get there. All those kind of things. How many of you have ever had those conversations? Thank you very much. Now, how many of you had the follow-up conversation? <laughs> you all have. We don't even have to go there, but I will. What was the last thing that we said before you left? Huh? What was the last thing that we said before you left? Uh, is this a trick question? 
No, it's just kind of like it's a learning time. School's in session. And we've all had that conversation. So, you know, I'm thinking, and I'm starting to chew on this a little bit, and, you know, and thinking it over and over again. And sometimes I wonder if, if we're not just as guilty sometimes as, you know, those around us can be sometimes. And that is, I can just picture Jesus saying, what was the last thing that I said before I left? Uh, uh, is this a trick question? It's an exit question, basically, exit instructions that should be taken to heart. And we would have to respond, well, Lord, the last thing that you said was that we should go and we should make disciples as we are going. That we should baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we should teach them to observe all that you commanded and that, you know what, and you are with us always, even to the end of the age. That's, that's what you told us. To go, you know, into Jerusalem, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth, and we're to make disciples as we go. And so that was the last instruction. And then it started, I started chewing us, and I'm wondering, I'm thinking, if we're to make disciples, we should probably know what a disciple is. Because how can we make disciples if we don't know what a disciple is? And how can we make a disciple if we're not a disciple first? Because we can't produce that which we are not. So the question becomes this, am I a disciple? And if I am a disciple, am I making disciples? Because that was the last thing I was told to do before he went back to heaven. And if I am, how do I know it? If I'm not, why not? And these are the kind of things that really start to bother you when you begin to meditate on the Word of God. And so God puts this burden on a person's heart and says, you know what, isn't that the last thing I told you to do? Yeah, it is. Well, what are you doing? Well, Lord, i got a problem. I don't know what a disciple is. I can't make one if I'm not one, and I can't be one if I don't know what it is. And so then you start to dig a little further. See, because as you're meditating on the Word of God, that's the, the process that God takes. He begins to walk you through it step by step. And so we need to get this addressed right now, and that's this. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who is committed to following and listening to the instruction of his teacher and then applying the things that he has learned. It's as simple as that. Being in the heating and air conditioning business and for a number of years being a contractor, I understand the concept of apprenticeship. It carries with it the idea of an apprentice. An apprentice is one who enters a trade, regardless of whether trade, whether it's heating and air conditioning or uh, an electrician or a plumber or any other trade. Uh, an apprentice is one who enters into a business and he's put alongside a guy who really can't stand him being there. <laughs> but he has to be there anyway for a lot of reasons. Why? Because you have to balance out the wages that are paid and more importantly, you're trying to what? Develop this apprentice into a journeyman or into a master technician. So it's very frustrating for the journeyman or the guy who's been there for a long time taking this green person, this rookie they call him, and have to deal with them all day long because most of the time the rookie, what, thinks he already knows everything. Oh, yeah, I know that already. Hey, you worked here, what, three hours now. I've been doing this 30 years. You know everything by now. Oh, that's interesting. And so they go through this process, and basically what it comes down to is that what is the journeyman or the master technician supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be instructing this rookie, this green person, who doesn't know anything, and he's supposed to be instructing him, teaching him, allowing him to do things hands-on, correcting him when he's wrong, telling him how to do it right, and giving him the freedom to learn and to grow so that one day he can actually become like the one who's instructing him, right? That's the same concept or idea that we find in the Bible as far as discipleship is concerned. Basically, what a disciple is, is one who is committed to following Jesus Christ, listening to his instruction, that's why, and, and observing all that I've commanded, understanding what I have taught, 
The disciples lived with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They heard him teach. And they also began to see how he applied what he taught. And they, in turn, would listen. They would learn. And in situations as they came up, the question that they asked, and it was a question that was asked then, and there's somebody came along with the idea uh, 2,000 years later and is making a fortune by selling bracelets and necklaces and everything else, but the WWJW bracelets that are out there now wasn't his idea, whoever this guy is. He did a good job marketing it. But it was Jesus' idea, and it was the disciples who first asked the question. Now, we're in this situation. What would Jesus do? That's where it came from, the idea of discipleship. I'm dealing with somebody I can't stand to be around. How would Jesus respond to this person? What would Jesus do? I'm in a business situation, and I, you know, I'm tempted to do one thing or the other, but the question is, what would Jesus do? What would my master do? What would my teacher do? What would my Lord do? Because as a disciple, we are committed to following his instructions, to be obedient as we learn. And then not only are we to do that, but we're to pass it along to the rookie who's coming along beside us. And we are to mentor them and to teach them and to make disciples as we are going. So now, really, the indictment comes, and that's this. Are we doing that? Am I doing that? You ask yourself, are you doing that? If that was the exit instructions, we've got we to deal with it. And it leads to the next thing. And that is in Romans chapter 8, as we're chewing and meditating on this, we begin to realize, you know what, it doesn't stop there. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses eight, 28 and 29. So a couple of weeks ago, I have a friend, this friend who was down from the Pacific Northwest. We had been friends for 15 years. Jeff Kemp played professional football for a number of teams. And he was in town, and so I asked him, I said, Jeff, you know what, would you, I mean, it's over the weekend, would you do me a favor, would you come and do, uh, speak to the angels uh, for our chapel program, because I don't get to see them very often, it's great that you're in town, hey, we can spend some time together, we can have dinner, and we can do all this, it would be great. And so we got together, and he spoke, and this was uh, the, the essence of the message that God had given him to share with this, particular, with, with this particular team at this time. And it was also one more thing that led me to meditate on what was being said. But in Romans 8, 28, we read this, many of us have memorized it, and we know this, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his, God's purposes. But we don't go far enough because we need to understand this. For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become, listen, conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, those he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so the process is what? God's desire for every one of us that are children of God, to those who have believed in Jesus Christ, is that we become conformed to the image of his Son. That is his goal for each one of us. That we become conformed to the image of his son. And doesn't that tie into the idea of a disciple? Isn't a disciple to become conformed to the image of his master, of his teacher, of his mentor? As he goes through life and people look at us as disciples, that we would be a reflection of Jesus Christ? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? What would Jesus say in this situation? That we are to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's goal for each one of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn and look at that. So it keeps on going. 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 11. 
Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child. I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Okay? Right to the point. And so I'm thinking this whole idea of discipleship, and all of a sudden it all starts tying together. You see, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I reasoned as a child, I acted as a child. But when I became a man, I put away all those childish ideas and ways of living. So you put it all together and you start to go, wow, you know what's interesting is, and, he, and here's the illustration, and, and I know that I think sometimes different than some of you, but bear with me on the illustration. How many of you have ever had children that you had a potty train? Okay. Children, grandchildren, you know the process. There's something rather, rather unique about potty training that I always found to be kind of strange. And that's the idea that when a child goes into the bathroom and does whatever he or she is going to do, that we call the family in to take note. Everybody, come on into the bathroom and look at this. And we applaud. Hey, look at that. Oh, yeah, it's really nice. Oh, look at that. That's really nice. And we applaud and we get all excited about it. Now, see, that's okay when you're dealing with children. Then I was thinking, can you imagine... You can, right away, you imagine, exactly. Now, can you imagine your teenage son in the bathroom one day, taking care of business, yelling, Mom, Dad, come on in and take a look at this. Now, there are some things that a child can get away with. But I'll tell you what, if my son yells to come and take a look at it, he better be really sick. And there got to be something in there that's totally unusual. Because you're just not going to go and do it. But there are things, and I guess my point is this, there are things that we expect of children that are okay for children to do, but when an adult tries to do it, it's rather disgusting. You know what I mean? Which leads us to the one last thing that's going to tie this all together. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1. Right after the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, James chapter 1. Notice these words. It says, And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you may be perfect, that you may be mature. And so as I put all these things together, and this has been a process that's been going on for a couple of years, so it shows you how slow I am sometimes, but uh, we finally got to where we needed to get, and that's this that God's desire is that we become a disciple, that we make disciples, that we lay aside childish things, that we become conformed in the image of his son, and that we become, through the process, more like Jesus every day. And so the admonition, or the commandment, is this, that we grow up and not just old. We need to grow up and not just old. That is the gist of everything that God is saying. To grow up and not just old. As we grow in our faith, we begin to ask the question more and more every day. In this situation, what would my teacher do? In this situation, what would my master say? In this situation, what does the word of God tell me to do? Because the word of God is filled with the instructions of our teacher. 
And he tells us exactly what to do. We're to grow up in our faith and not just get old. That's the goal. We're to become more and more like Jesus every day. We are to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I like the story that's told of a pastor who asked his congregation, he says, does anyone here know any perfect people? He wasn't expecting a response. But there was a guy in the back who jumped up and said, I do. And the pastor was caught off guard because he didn't expect a response. And he said, you do, sir? He said, yes, I do. He said, well, really? And, and who would that be? He said, my wife's first husband. <laughs> you see, what's interesting, he learned from experience <coughs> how to measure from a perfect standard. And he realized that he fell short quite a bit of the time. Okay, we've got a quarter left of this one. <clears throat> but obviously, a situation is more a matter of selective memory because obviously this, this lady's first husband wasn't perfect. But there's a standard that was set. Now listen to me very carefully. That's not the case with our God. That is not the case with our God. When he measures us against the standard of his perfection, our imperfections are glaring. And you know what? Listen to me. Yet God does not reduce his standard of measurement. God does not reduce his standard of measurement. God does not lower the bar so that we are more appealing in his sight. His desire, according to Jesus in Matthew 5:48, is that you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's holiness is non-negotiable. He calls us to live up to his standard, and he doesn't lower his standard to meet where we are. You follow that? That's critical that we understand it. God's standard of holiness is non-negotiable. He does not lower the bar so somehow or another we can attain it. He sets the bar and says, you are to live up to that standard, and I am not lowering that standard for you. It's non-negotiable. And you know what I was thinking? It's, a, it's, it's such a far cry from what we have going on in the spirit of this present age. You and I are witnessing firsthand what I would call the dumbing down of righteousness. That not only has a secular society lost its moral compass due to the erosion of any sense of absolute truths, but unfortunately Christians are rapidly descending the ladder of holiness rather than ascending the mountain of godliness to be near and to be like our perfect God. That is the standard that he has set. Day in and day out, we're bombarded with standards of this ungodly world, and if you think about it, we're duped into thinking that being a tad better than the world somehow makes us more acceptable to God. The reality, however, is this, that God in his absolute holiness is our standard, not the world and all of its fallenness. It says, yet we along with you know, our mates, our children, our friends, our family, and even our churches are falling into the pattern of believing that as long as I'm a little better than the average guy in the street who doesn't even know God, doesn't, isn't even aware of God's standard, as long as I'm a little better than him, then I'm okay in God's sight. Listen to me. The church is to be the place that maintains God's standard of holiness. It is not to be a place that stoops to the level of the world around us. When people come to church to a God-fearing, Bible-teaching church. 
they have got to recognize that the bar is set very high because it's non-negotiable and we cannot lower to make people feel better about where they are in their disobedience before God. That is what we're all about, and that's what we must always be about, the Word of God and nothing but the Word of God. So help us, God. And that's the reason that there's so much confusion in our culture, because those who profess to know God and claim to know the truth of God have lowered the standard of God so that everybody can fit in as long as it's comfortable for those around them. And that is not God's standard. That's why I've chosen to do this series. It's a series that will challenge us to live according to God's standard as clearly outlined in this book, the book of James. James makes God's goal quite clear for every one of us. And that is this, that we become perfect and mature and that we're lacking in nothing. God's goal is for us to be conformed to the image of His Son, that we are perfect, that we are mature, that we grow up as Christians and lay aside childish things and childish thoughts. That is exactly what the goal is as we look at this and as we put all these thoughts together. Now, I know some of you are already thinking in your head of me. You're going, well, Chuck, come on now. Is it reasonable to think that any one of us can ever be perfect in this lifetime? I already know because I struggle with it. I've meditated on it. I've chewed on it. I've, I've got there before you. You just got there now. I got there two years ago struggling with where, where, this, is, where this was heading. And that's this, well, Lord, you know I can't be perfect. You know me. You know every flaw that there is in my, in my soul, in my character. You know everything that's, that's wrong with me. And you tell me to set a standard of perfection and that's what you expect of me? I can't live up to that. Do you realize that's exactly why he maintains the standard that he does? That's precisely the point. God calls us to pursue His per- perfect standard of righteousness. And listen, as we do, guess what happens? He inches us towards God-likeness day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. Here's an illustration that I was thinking of. Another one that you might understand, you might not. But the guys will, so I'll go with it. <clears throat> now, I've always been a pretty decent athlete. Played football, baseball, basketball. I've always been able to hold my own and even then some. I golf maybe six or eight times a year, and I can golf in the mid-80s. So, you know, that's not bad for a guy who doesn't play that often. And uh, the first marathon that I ever ran, I committed to train, and I finished in the top 8% of 20,000 people that ran the race, and top 5% of my age group at that time, having never run a marathon. So, you know, I, I, I know that I'm a pretty decent athlete, and I can hold my own. And I tell you this not so that you go, wow, what an amazing guy. Um, <laughs> But I can't control that if you go there with it. But but I tell you that for this reason. The closer I've got to those who participate in such sports on a professional level, the clearer that it has become to me that I'm not as good as I think I am. You follow me? I mean, we all think we're pretty good until you get to the next level. Every kid in high school thinks he can play in college until he gets there and goes, whoa. That's why not very many make it. Every kid in college thinks he can play at the next level and play in the professional rounds, and not many get there either. Every kid playing minor league baseball dreams as aspirations are to get in the professional level. So I know guys all through the minor league system, the Angels. I know guys at AAA. I know guys that are obviously on the, on the uh, big leagues. And you look at all of them, and there's such a huge difference between every level. And as you're exposed to the next level, what you begin to realize is that sometimes you're not as good as you think you are. And I've got a long way to go if I ever think I'm going to compete at that type of level and I don't got time to get there anymore because what I got to work with is falling apart. So I'm a realist. Those days are done. 
And so as we look at that, the clearer, the clear, closer we get to perfection, the clearer we see our flaws and imperfections. And so as we pursue godly perfection, we find ourselves exposed to our own imperfections, and we need to turn to God for his cleansing. The closer that you and I get to God, the more we realize how imperfect we are and how real and true it is that, you know what, it's only by God's grace through faith that any of us will ever get into the kingdom of God. And so as we consider this, we live in the light of God's perfection. We begin climbing to a new spiritual level, uh, hating how unlike him we are and finding an ever greater passion to become more like Jesus. Listen to me. Every professional athlete that I've known over the last 15 to 16 years, it doesn't matter if it's football or if it's baseball or what sport, every professional athlete I've ever known has one goal every time they go out on the field. And you know what that goal is? To be perfect that day. To be four for four at the plate. To pitch a no-hitter or a perfect game. To be error-free in the chances that they have to make plays in the, in the, uh, in the field. To, to, uh, to not drop the football, to catch every pass that's thrown to him, not to throw a pick as a quarterback. Every athlete that I know at that level, their goal is to be perfect each and every time they go out on the field. Now, when an athlete begins to think that somehow he can lower that standard or expectation, there's a term that's used for athletes who think they can go out and play okay that day. It's called ex-athlete. <laughs> it just is. You, can't, you cannot adopt that mindset or you will know compete in the game. Now, let's take it to a spiritual level. There's a reason that you and I are unproductive as Christians in this culture. And that's just tell it the way it is and it's really blunt, but I don't care. And the bottom line is this. It's because we enter the game of life every day with less than the expectation to be perfect that day for our God. If we fail, we fail. 1 John 1, 9. Lord, I can sin and do anything I want to do because I know you have to forgive me because your word says if we confess our sins, you're going to be faithful, you're going to be just, you're going to forgive us and cleanse us from all of it. And so we enter into life with this casual attitude that it doesn't matter if I go 0 for 4 today, it doesn't matter if I drop everything that's hit my way, it doesn't matter if I can't throw the ball over the plate, nothing really matters because I'm saved by grace and I'm in anyway. And the book of James will confront that mentality and say to you and to me, grow up. Grow up. And it's time that we do that. The pursuit of perfection will not produce absolute perfection in your lifetime or in mine. But you will grow tremendously if that's your goal each and every day. To be like your master. To be like your teacher. To pursue godliness and holiness. To realize that God will not lower a standard or drop the bar to make it easier for you to get through the day. But he calls us to obedience and he calls us to holiness and he calls us to righteousness. And that's what it means to be sanctified or set apart. We're not like everybody else. We have been called, we have been sanctified, we have been set apart from the rest of the world because when people see the way we live, they look and say, you know what, I'll bet you that's exactly how Jesus lived. Why? Because we're his disciples. 
we need to recognize that that's the truth. So here we are in the book of James, and this is what we're going to study, and this is the direction that we're heading. And you know what? There's going to be some tough stuff that we deal with, but that's okay because those are the kind of things that cause growth in our life. So that's good stuff. So let's go to the book of James and an introduction, the first verse. You know what? Beginning a study of the book of the Bible is something like preparing to go on a trip. Now, I know many of us were in the middle of summer, and many of us are planning vacations or planning to go places. And so as a result, now how many of you plan on vacations? When you go somewhere, don't you usually do this? You kind of go out and you get maps or, or you know, I mean, guys don't, and not as far as road maps are concerned. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, you know because we, we, we'll get there. We know we'll get there. Because we'll stop and ask for directions if we get lost. Uh, <laughs> but but we go, you go out and you get information, right? You get maps, you get books, you get things on where you're going and what to expect when you get there. And you're all excited because you're planning this trip. And so when you get there, you want to make sure you don't miss anything, you know? So you're doing all this, the studying and the homework. And, and it's exciting because you know what to expect once you're there. Oh, yeah, I saw that in the book. And then you go, blah, blah. So, you know, studying the book of Bible is like that. We want to at least have an idea of where we're going with this. And so that's basically what I'm going to try to accomplish in our time together. And that's where are we going and, and what direction are we heading. So here it is in James chapter 1, verse 1. We read these words. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, we read greetings. Now the questions that we're going to ask are four questions and they'll help us to understand what's, what this study is going to be about, what direction that we're heading, and what we can expect when we get there. The question number one is this, who is James? Because it's pretty obvious that the writer of this letter identifies himself as James. Now James, unfortunately, is a very common name. And it's a form of the Old Testament name, Jacob. And so there were several men in the Bible who were given the name James, or at least are identified by that name. So we need to kind of narrow down who wrote the letter. Because it's real important that once we understand who wrote it, we'll understand a lot more of what the contents will be all about. There was James, the son of Zebedee. And he was also the brother of John. Some of us know him as there was Peter, James, and John, part of the group of guys that were the inner three. Jesus took up on the Mount of Transfiguration and showed all of his pre-incarnate glory to him. So it was Peter, James, and John. Jesus nicknamed them uh, the Sons of Thunder because of their impulsiveness. They had to be a lot of fun to be around. You know, the, the Sons of Thunder. I mean, if you know somebody like that, it's like, wow, it pretty much says it all about where these guys were coming from. But James and John were the Sons of Thunder. Now, what's interesting is that James was martyred for his faith in the year 44 A.D. We know that as an historical fact. Now, there's a problem here, because the book of James, or the letter of James, or the epistle of James, was written between the years 45 and 50. So he died before this letter was ever written. So as a result, we can just kind of throw him out as being the potential author of this particular letter. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. He was another disciple, but the Bible doesn't tell us much about him. He's obscure. He goes by the wayside as well. And James, the father of Judas, not the father of Judas Iscariot, but the father of Judas. And he was even more obscure than the first guy, so we throw him out. That leaves us with one James that's left, most likely the candidate of this letter, and has been accepted throughout history as the candidate of this letter. His name is James, and he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now, some of us are kind of flipped out when we hear that Jesus had brothers and sisters. But the Word of God plainly teaches that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and they were half-brothers. And we need to recognize and understand, because we know this, that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Spirit of God and born through a virgin. 
And that is what the Bible teaches very clearly. Joseph knew he never had sex with Mary because Joseph was offended to find out that Mary was pregnant and he went to look at and put her away and divorce her because in Jewish tradition, you were engaged for a one-year period of time before you were actually married, but the engagement period was like being married. They just had the ceremony at the end of the year. He, he was engaged to her and found that she was with child and he was upset by that, but he was also a godly and humble man and rather than make a big scene, scene about it, he went to divorce her secretly or put her aside secretly. God came and appeared to Joseph in a dream through an angel and said, don't worry about it, it's all under control. The, the, the child that she has has been conceived by the Spirit of God and it's okay, everything will be all right. And Joseph, in obedience, went along and married her and continued to have a relationship with her. The Bible says that Mary was, remained a virgin in, in Matthew chapter 1, I think verse 25, what? Until she gave birth to Jesus Christ. Then the Bible says they had normal marital relationships and that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. And we find that in Matthew 13, 55 and 56. So Jesus had a family of half-brothers and sisters. Now, in the book of John, we read that, you know what? They didn't even believe in Jesus. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, that during Jesus' earthly ministries, they didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world. And don't forget, Mary was told to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Everyone knew of the birth of Jesus because the Pharisees throughout the life of Jesus Christ called him the son of fornication. They knew that, you know what, there was something funny about their family background and called Jesus the son of fornication, not the son of God. Much to their indictment. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that, you know what, these brothers of his, half-brothers, didn't even believe in him. But yet, we're told in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, that as they were praying in the upper room, all of his brothers were there praying. And the question for you is, what changed in their hearts to lead them from not believing in Jesus to putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And the answer is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, we read these words. In fact, look at the contrast here. It says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve, included in the twelve was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, says, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then look, and then he appeared to James and to all the other apostles. And lastly, he appeared to me, Paul writes. But the point is this, the James that we see in verse 7 is different and contrasted from the James that were included among the apostles. And we know that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were in that group. And here is James, the brother of Jesus. And Jesus Christ appeared to James, his half-brother. And at that time, guess what happened? James believed, just like Thomas did. Hey, I believe when you show up, when I see him and I can touch his wounds, put my fingers in his hand and in his, my fist in his side, and when I see Jesus, then I'll believe him. And boy, don't we hear that today in our cynical world. Jesus, if he appeared to me, then I'd believe him. Hey, let me tell you something. The historical record is quite clear and very, uh, very demonstrative that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he didn't hide it from anybody. He appeared to his apostles. He appeared to 500 others. He appeared and he changed the world and turned it upside down. That's why people today still put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because he is not in a tomb. He is alive and he is risen. And he is God and he is Lord and he is Savior. And when James' half-brother saw him, he went, My Lord and my God. And he dropped to his knees. And you know what? He was never the same again after that. 
And neither should we be the same after we've come to see and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. James grew and became a leader of the early church. In Acts chapter 15, he was the one that moderated all the problems that were going on between the Jews and the Gentiles who were putting their faith and trust in Christ. The Jews still wanted Gentiles to be circumcised and, and, and to perform all of the ritualistic uh, rituals that were in the Old Testament. Uh, you can't be saved unless you do all these things. And there was this conflict between legalism and grace. And James was the moderator of all of it. The Bible says that James was a solid man of God, that he was a man of prayer. In fact, they called him camel knees because he spent so much time on his knees that his knees were rough and callous, just like a camel. And he said, there's a man, there's a godly man of prayer. James was an incredible man. In fact, James, we're told from, histor- from historical records, but not from biblical records, that James was martyred for his testimony for Jesus Christ. And he was taken to the temple, and he was thrown off the top of the temple. And he was still alive when he hit the ground. And they picked up stones, and they stoned him to death. And you know what James said as he was laying there dying? He looked and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He put into application, let's see, what would Jesus do? Oh, that's what he did. He said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue at what they're doing. That was James. And what's interesting is now you and I look at it and say, well, gee, why didn't he say James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, throw a little family background in there. You know, I mean, that's the way some of us think. We would identify ourselves that way. Hey, I'm James, the half-brother of our Lord, so don't give me any lip. You're going to listen to what i got to say. But so you know what? James goes on in his letter and he says, you know what? Don't be a respecter of persons. He probably learned his lesson one time when there was a crowd of people and, the, and, and Jesus' family was way in the back. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, Hey, Lord, your mother and your brothers, man, they're way in the back. Why don't you usher them up and give them preferential treatment and give them some seating up front? That's what they deserve, don't they? And Jesus looked at them and he said to them, He said, You know what? Who are my mother and who are my brothers but all who do the will of God? Wow. James learned a lesson. And so, you know how James identifies himself? I'm just James. I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I'm just a humble servant. You know why? Because the closer that James got to perfection, the more he realized how much growing he had yet to do. You know, Paul early in his ministry used to call himself, hey, you know what, I'm the foremost apostle. Pretty hot stuff. By the end of all of it, when he was about being ready to martyr for his faith in Christ, you know what he said about himself? I've come to realize that I'm the chief sinner. First, that was pretty hot stuff. But you know what? It was pretty heady. You know, being tutored by our Lord, being discipled by him, mentored by him. He goes, so I was the foremost apostle. But by the end of his ministry, he realized, you know what? As he grew closer to the Lord, and as he was being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and as he grew in his faith, he began to realize, you know what? <laughs> I'm, I'm the chief sinner. The closer I got to perfection, the more I realized how much more there is for me to grow. But you know what? He grew because he never lowered the standard. He always kept it exactly where God left it. And the standard is that we are to be perfect just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Do you want to be used by God to accomplish great things in this lifetime? Then you know what? Don't ever lower that bar. Don't ever lower that standard. God wants us to be perfect just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And as we maintain that standard, guess what's going to happen in our life? Inch by inch, foot by foot, minute by minute, day by day, month by month, year by year, we will become conformed to the image of our Lord and our Savior, our teacher and our master, Jesus Christ. So that when people see us, they go, you know what? I got a good idea that that's exactly what Jesus was like. 
Not that we'll ever be mistaken for him, but you know what? We're to represent him. We're his ambassadors. We should be exactly what he calls us to be in this world. Who did he write to? Well, we know it was James who wrote. He was a half-brother of our Lord. He wrote to those who are dispersed, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. The 12 tribes who are dispersed is very clear. That is the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel to Jews who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They were brothers uh, in the Lord. And he wrote to them who are dispersed. The word dispersed had to do with the idea of being uh, seed that is being sown. And it's important as we go through this letter that we see exactly what happened here. And that's this, that God has taken these people because of their disobedience and had dispersed them throughout the culture and the world at that time. When Peter spoke at Pentecost, there was a group of people from all over the world. They were dispersed among the world. And it had the idea of throwing seed and throwing it out and making it, uh, uh, you know, basically dispersing a diaspora through seed. He was going to accomplish great things in the world. So God said to go out into all the world, his, his exit instructions again, first in Jerusalem and Samaria and to all, all the outermost parts of the world. And God is sowing seed through the life of those who continue to hold that standard that we are to be perfect just as our Heavenly Father. That's who he wrote to. Now the question is this, why did he write? Why did James write? And as we go through this, we're going to see very clearly there are reasons that he wrote. Every letter in the, in the Bible is written for a specific purpose. The church at Corinth had specific problems that were addressed. The church at Galatia had a specific problem of legalism uh, that was addressed. The church here uh, that is dispersed or abroad, there are specific problems that are going to be addressed. And you're asked, well, what are some of the problems? Well, you know what? They were impatient in their, te- and their testings. There were trials that were going on in their life because they had been dispersed. And there was, they were impatient during these testings. Uh, They were failing when it came to temptation. They were being tempted, and they were failing the temptation. They were falling into temptation. There was also a matter of they were given preferential treatment to those who were wealthy. They were looking at those who had more, and they were given better treatment than those who had little materially. There were a whole bunch of problems that were going on. There were people that were saying one thing, they were talking out of one side of their mouth, but they were living out of the other side of their mouth. They were professing to be Christians and, and, and to be disciples of Jesus Christ, but their lifestyles indicated that they didn't know what they were talking about. They were talking out of both sides of their mouth. And as we go through and we look at all this, there was a problem of worldliness. There was a problem of the tongue. They were destroying each other, tearing each other down, not building each other up. And I go through all this and I'm going, man, gee, this sounds kind of familiar. And there are people that actually come to you and say, hey, you know what, man, let me tell you something. I don't think the Bible is very relevant for today. Oh, you mean people aren't impatient in their trials today? People aren't failing when it comes to falling into temptation and giving into temptation? You mean there, are peop- there aren't people today who claim to be believers but live like they're not? You mean there are people today that no, they, they, they don't have a problem with their tongue and they can't control it and they're gossiping and slandering and tearing other people down? That's not happening today. I mean, there are people today that aren't buying into getting sidetracked and buying into the world philosophy and the world culture being left aside where they're not doing what God's called them to do. You mean to tell me that that's not relevant for today? Wow! Sure is where I live. It's amazing to me. Listen to me carefully. The bottom line problem of all of these things that we're going to discuss is one thing and one thing only, and that's this. Spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. They weren't growing in their faith. They were still babies. Even though they were grown people, they were still children from a spiritual standpoint. And that's why the writers of the Hebrews said, man, I can't believe it by now. By now, you people should be ready for the deep things of God, and i got to go back and start giving you milk again. Why? 
Because you haven't grown up. Because you haven't got serious about growing in your faith and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because you're not spending enough time in the Word of God. Because you're not meditating on the Word of God. You're not applying the things that God is teaching you. I've got to go back to square one. You're like that apprentice HVAC guy that doesn't know how to screw in a register in a house yet. And he's been in a trade for ten years. We've got to go back and say, this is a drill motor. This is a screw. That's a wall. That's how you do it. You know, that should be like the first five minutes on the trade. But if you're still doing that after ten years, guess what? You better find something else to do. Because I guarantee you, after about three weeks, if you're not doing that, you're not into it ten years. But see, with Christianity, it's different. Man, we could be into it for a whole lifetime, never accomplish anything, never grow beyond go. And that's a sad indictment, but it's true. And we need to realize it and recognize it. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. And you know why they're playpens for babies? Because we have taken the only thing that God has given us to cause growth in the life of every believer, and we have set it aside for whatever the latest trend or philosophy of the world is that's come along. We have taken the Word of God, which is what we need for spiritual growth. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that in it you will grow in respect to your salvation. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You and I cannot grow spiritually if we are not ingesting on a regular basis a steady, healthy diet of the Word of God. That is God's standard for growth. It's the only thing He has that He gives us to use. And we get caught up in all the other diets of the world. We're just like we are in a physical world. Man, it's like, you ever notice there are 50,000 new ways to lose weight and there are just as many people that need to lose weight today than there's ever been. And the reason for it is what? Now they've got things where, hey, you can just sit in a chair and lose weight. You can sit in a chair and watch TV and eat ho-hos, ding-dongs, bonbons, watch Oprah and lose weight. What a deal. You just plug it in, you hook yourself up to all this stuff, and it just makes you do this. Those are people that you got walking around your office doing this. You think they have Parkinson's. They don't. they got one of those machines. They're just kind of hooked up to it. They're in the car plugging it into the lighter. Just... Hey, look, I'm losing weight. Hey, you know what? No, you're not. You're just wasting money. And they got all different contraptions. You know why? I know, because we bought most of them. <laughs> and we sold all of them in garage sales. You know, at 25% of the cost. Hey, this is an easy way to get those abs you really want. No, it's not. It's hard work. Out to the garage. <laughs> Buns of steel? I don't think so. Let's put it this way. When I sit down, I'm not bouncing back up. You know what I mean? It's like we're always looking for the easy way out. There's no easy way to grow spiritually. Don't we get it by now? I guess we don't. You know what's interesting is as we look at this outline that we're going to be going through, basically here's what the Bible lays out in the book of James and it helps us to understand it. Here's the marks of a mature Christian and it kind of is the outline of where we're heading. But the marks of a mature, mature Christian are broken out by the, the uh, chapters in this study. And that says, number one, a mature Christian's patient in testing during times of trial. That's our next session next week. And that is, that, you know what, how do we grow through our trials and our times of testing? 
those difficult times in life that every one of us have to go through, how do we grow through that? How do we become conformed to the image of Christ? How do we become more God-like in how we approach these times of trial? Because we're all going to go through it. He also practices the truth. He speaks the truth in love. He doesn't destroy people. He has power over his tongue. He doesn't talk out of both sides of his mouth. What you see is what you get. What you hear is what you see lived out before you. That's one thing that I've always felt a real burden in my own family, and that's this. To be able to tell my wife and to be able to tell my children and be able to look at them and have them look at me and not walk around with this idea that my dad is a hypocrite, but to be able to say, you know what? What my dad tells other people, he lives first himself. What my dad tells us, he lives too. And doesn't mean they always are ready to embrace that. But there's one thing they can never come back and throw in my face. Hey, you know what? Don't tell me because you used to tell me to do certain things and you were doing the opposite. No, what you see is what you got. Do as I say and as I do. And as long as what I say and what I'm doing lines up with the word of God, you're going to be okay in God's sight. See, we need more people that'll just say, hey, you know what? Follow me around if you want. Seven, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, every day, and follow me. We need to have people in spiritual leadership that are beyond reproach. People that if they want to be in a spiritual leadership position, that we should be able to go to their wife, to their children, to their homes, to their businesses, and ask other people what's their reputation. And in fact, you know what? That's the qualifications that are required of a spiritual leader, according, according to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Why? Because we've got to be people above reproach. Because every day, if we're becoming more like Christ and godly in the way we live, we're on a journey that's heading toward perfection, ultimately one day in the presence of God. No, you and I will not be perfect, but if we maintain a perfect, perfect standard, guess what? We're going to move toward perfection. If we lower that standard, then we don't have a chance to even come close. As we look at this, that's the outline. He's a peacemaker. He's not a troublemaker. He's not stirring things up. He's trying to bring about peace. And it's interesting because James at the council did exactly the same thing in Jerusalem. He was a man that looked for a way to bring peace. And you know how he brought peace? He used the word of God. He said, you know what, let's go to the Word of God, and the Word of God is our tiebreaker. And if we got people that are in opposite camps, and the Word of God says one thing to one group, and you know what, and you're wrong, then confess your sin, agree you're wrong, and line yourself with the standard that God lays out, and that's the Word of God. Isn't that wonderful? It's truth. And the last thing, you know what, old camel knees, man, he was praying all the time. In times of difficulty, in times of trouble, he was on his knees before God, and that's a mark of a spiritually mature person. The immature person, it reminds me of Peter. Every time something came up in Peter's life, the first thing he did was act impulsively. As he grew in his faith and as he became mature, you know what, he slowed down a little bit and he began to pray. And he began to make sure that God was out ahead of him before he acted. I'll tell you this about my life. I don't know if it's true of you and I hope it is, but that's this. I never want to go nowhere that God hasn't already paved the way and is there ahead of me saying, follow me. I don't want to get ahead of him because I don't want them saying, boy, you know, why'd you go that direction? I, I never led you that way. I, I was just, you know, hurry, hurry to do your will. Hey, man, you're in a hurry to do my will. My will is to slow down, see striving, know that I'm God, get down on your knees, and let's have some conversation. And not only that, but let's get in the word of God and make sure the direction you're going lines up with where I want you to go. That's how the will of God is discerned, through the word of God. So basically, that's the direction that we're heading. How can we get the most of the study? We'll tie it all in next week when we come back to find out how we can grow through trials and through our testing. Some of us are more like the person who wrote this prayer. And in closing, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. And if this is where you are, then there's hope for you because if you have a desire to grow, if you have a desire, let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a serious question. 
If you have a desire to grow, to move past go, to grow up in your faith, I'm going to ask you a question, and that is this. Will you be committed to come, to listen to the Word of God, and then apply it in your life? If you are, and you maintain that standard that God sets, I guarantee you that the next however many weeks that we spend time together in the Word, it will never be a waste of your time. This prayer was written by someone that I think many of us can relate to. And he or she said this. And in fact, let's say he said this. Dear Lord, so far today, I'm doing all right. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. However, I am about to get out of bed in a few minutes, (laughs) and I will need a lot more help after that. Thank you. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We just pray that we can become conformed to the image of our Lord and our Savior, that we can first be disciples so that we can make disciples. God, we look for the day that you conform us into the image of our Lord as we grow closer day by day, inch by inch, foot by foot, whatever it is, that we continue to ascend the ladder of righteousness and holiness and godliness and not ask that the bar be lowered to our level. God, we just thank you that as we continue to enter the game of life daily with the standard of perfection, that we'll grow towards being the kind of people that you want us to be and the world that has gone far from you. We look forward to what you'll do. We look forward to the difficulties that will come with, with a commitment that comes to growing in our faith. But yet we also know this. As Satan turns up the heat, that it's your hand that controls the thermostat. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.